You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Richard Matheson's original short story that tonight's episode was based on started out like this. The man in the dark raincoat arrived in German Corners at 2.30 that Friday afternoon. He walked across the bus station to a counter behind which a plump grey-haired woman was polishing glasses. Please, he said. Where might I find authority? The woman peered through the rimless glasses at him. She saw a man in his late thirties, a tall good-looking man. Authority? she asked. Yes, how do you say it? The constable. Sheriff? Ah, the man smiled. Of course, the sheriff. Where might I find him? After being directed, he walked out of the building into the overcast day. The threat of rain had been constant since he'd woken up that morning as the bus was pulling over the mountains into Casca Valley. The man drew up his collar, then slid both hands into the pockets of his raincoat and started briskly down Main Street. Really, he felt tremendously guilty for not having come sooner, but there was so much to do, so many problems to overcome with his own two children. Even knowing that something was wrong with Holger and Fanny, he'd been unable to get away from Germany until now, almost a year since they last heard from the Nielsens. It was a shame that Holger had chosen such an out-of-the-way place for his corner of the four-sided experiment. Professor Werner walked more quickly, anxious to find out what had happened to the Nielsens and their son. Their progress with the boy had been phenomenal, really an inspiration to them all. Although Werner felt deep within himself that something terrible had happened, he hoped they were all alive and well. Yet, if they were, how to account for the long silence? Werner shook his head worriedly. Could it have been the town? Elkenberg had been compelled to move several times in order to avoid the endless prying, sometimes innocent, more often malicious, into his work. Something similar might have happened to Nielsen. The workings of the small town composite mind could sometimes be a terrible thing. The sheriff's office was in the middle of the next block, Werner strode more quickly along the narrow sidewalk, then pushed open the door and entered the large, warmly heated room. Yes? the sheriff asked, looking up from his desk. I have come to inquire about a family, Werner said. The name of Nielsen. 
Sheriff Harry Wheeler looked blankly at the tall man. So Matheson's original story played like some noirish thriller, in the beginning at least, where you don't know whether this stranger coming into town looking for the family spells trouble. But here in the Twilight Zone episode, the opening is a little less mysterious, but no less intriguing. The undersigned, having accepted the following propositions. A. That prior to the inception of language, man communicated by telepathic means. And B. That this ability not only still exists, but can be redeveloped to its former effectiveness. Do hereby agree to the following precepts. One, that we shall henceforth dedicate our professional and private lives to the study of mental telepathy and whatever extrasensory functions may be supplemental to it. Two, that the findings of this study shall be applied not only to ourselves, but to all our children. Three, that each family unit shall reside in a location calculated to prevent the interference of society. So for the uninitiated, it seems at this moment you would be forgiven for thinking that we're going to get a 50-minute story that tells us all about these people and this grand experiment. But actually, that's not the case at all. And in a manner of speaking, this is a Twilight Zone with a twist comes at the beginning. So let's see what I mean by that in tonight's episode, Mute. What you're witnessing is the curtain raiser to a most extraordinary play. To wit, the signing of a pact, the commencement of a project. The play itself will be performed almost entirely off stage. The final scene should be enacted a decade hence and with a different cast. The main character of these final scenes is Ilsa, the daughter of Professor and Mrs. Nielsen, age two. At the moment, she lies sleeping in her crib, unaware of the singular drama in which she is to be involved. Ten years from this moment, Ilsa Nielsen is to know the desolating terror of living simultaneously in the world and in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 31st of January 1963, written by Richard Matheson and directed by Stuart Rosenberg. Now I think I mistakenly said last time that He's Alive was Stuart Rosenberg's last Twilight Zone, so he did direct these two on the run. So it's quite unusual here at the beginning of season 4 because the first three episodes were all by the same director, Perry Lafferty, and then the next two were by Rosenberg. And of course this one is written by Richard Matheson, which in itself is not unusual, but what is, is that it begins a five episode run where Rod Serling doesn't write an episode. Of the 14 that we are left with in season 4, Nine are not written by Rod Serling, so this begins the longest run so far where Serling doesn't pen an episode, but in season five there is a seven episode run where he doesn't write one so it does get surpassed. So a good solid opening narration by Rod Serling I thought, and he talks about it being a play and having a cast, and I don't think that's Rod Serling stepping out of the fiction and just becoming a presenter. I kind of see it as he's still using that language in the same way as he might say portrait of a man. It's not actually a portrait of a man, 
but a study of a man. So I think he's using a similar thing here, and this has the benefit of setting the scene for us while still being true to the way Rod Serling uses language. Now I said at the start that this is an episode where the twist comes at the beginning. And that's not entirely true, but what I mean by that is that if you've never seen this before, and you see these people sitting around a table, having this conversation, laying out this experiment, then you think this is going to be the story. What happens with this experiment? I think at this point I was expecting an evil child story where these telepathic children go on a rampage. But what actually happens is that this is pretty much the last we see of most of these people, and even the ones we do see again have a very small role to play. So I do think if you haven't seen it before, the fact that it concerns one of the children of this whole group does subvert the expectations somewhat. Now once again this season, we have an episode that is very light on trivia. The Twilight Zone companion entry is all review, and while Martin Grams Jr. does his best, it's still a pretty slim entry. So the main trivia comes from the fact that this is based on a short story of the same name by Richard Matheson, and as you'll notice from the opening section in the original short story, the child who is the subject of the story is a boy and not a girl, and his name is spelled P-A-A-L. Now being that his parents are German, I looked up the pronunciation and it seems to be that it's pronounced Pile, but English speakers would generally look at it and think it's a play on the name of Paul. And later on in the story, in the book version, they do actually change his name to Paul. So quite why there is a change of sex, I don't know. But Martin Grams Jr. simply writes in Unlocking the Door to a television classic that Matheson was asked to make the change when he was asked to write the script, but there's no more detail to it than that. Now this adaptation is a pretty faithful one, so there's not a great deal to compare and contrast, but there are a couple of things that I will pick out along the way. You think she's... Is she burned? She's alive. Are you all right? She's in shock, Harry. Get a blanket on her. Bad off. Can't talk, can't cry, can't do nothing. She's not burned, though. How could she get out of that house without being burned? So at this point in the episode, I still think I'm in that mindset that this is going to be an evil child with supernatural powers type story. I'm thinking that the child has caused the fire with some telekinetic hijinks because we've all seen that movie, but as it turns out, it's not the case. So the fire department of German Corners PA is a volunteer one, and the name of this place, German Corners, piqued my interest, because it is quite odd. So I looked it up thinking that perhaps, historically, it was an area where there were a lot of German settlers, so it's been given this name. But all I really found was a rather confused entry on a site called Roadside Thoughts. 
that gives information about towns and places in the US and Canada, and the entry says, Although we found mention of German corners during our research, we have little information about it. Given the context of how German corners was mentioned, we believe that it was a community rather than some type of landmark. We have done a cursory search, and if it's a community, we haven't been able to find any evidence that it still exists. Now there is a place called Germansville in Pennsylvania, so I wondered did German Corners evolve into Germansville? But even the Wikipedia entry on Germansville is quite slim, and it says Germansville is an ex-urban incorporated community in Northern Lee County, approximately 20 miles northwest of Allentown, and 2 miles north of routes 100 and 309 in Pleasant Corners. So maybe a connection there. And it says, It is located on the Jordan Creek in Heidelberg Township and is pronounced with a hard G. So if you are listening to this show from German Corners, do write in and let us know that it hasn't disappeared into the Twilight Zone. So back in the episode, the young girl is found alive following a fire at her house. Now again, great production here in season 4, there's no stock footage, just an impressively staged house fire. So Ilsa is taken to the home of Sheriff Harry Wheeler, where he lives with his wife Cora Wheeler. And when Ilsa wakes up, the shock of the fire has subsided. And now of course, she wants to know where her parents are. Now, in the original version in that short story, what the book gives us is something that the television version can't. A proper glimpse inside the head of Paul, or in this version, Ilse, and how they process the world in their minds. Now, we do hear Ilse's thoughts, but she really just thinks in words. And of course, it makes sense that they would do it in this way on television, because they don't really have much choice. But in the book... Matheson has the freedom to be able to describe a completely different way of thinking. So let's compare the moment when Ilsa wakes up in the morning after the fire to when Paul wakes up. For a long moment he stared up at the formless shadows that danced and fluttered across the ceiling. It was raining out. The wind was rustling tree boughs outside the window, causing shadow movements in this strange room. Paul lay motionless on the warm centre of the bed, air crisp in his lungs, cold against his pale cheeks. Where were they? Paul closed his eyes and tried to sense their presence. They weren't in the house. Where then? Where were his mother and father? Hands of my mother. Paul washed his mind clean of all but the trigger symbol. They rested on the ebony velvet of his concentration, pale, lovely hands, soft to touch, and be touched by, the mechanism that could raise his mind to the needed level of clarity. In his own home, it would be unnecessary. His own home was filled with the sense of them. Each object touched by them possessed a power to bring their minds close. The very air seemed charged with their consciousness filled with a constancy of attention. Not here. He needed to lift himself above the alien drag of here. Therefore, I am convinced that each child is born 
with this instinctive ability. Words given to him by his father, appearing again like dew-jeweled spiderweb across the fingers of his mother's hands. He stripped it off. The hands were free again, stroking slowly at the darkness of his mental focus. His eyes were shut. A tracery of lines and ridges scarred his brow. His tightened jaw was bloodless. The level of awareness, like waters, rose. Sound revealed its woven maze. The rushing, thudding, drumming, dripping rain. The tangled knit of winds through air and tree and gabled eve. The crackling settle of the house. Each whispering transience of process. Sense of smell expanded to a cloud of brain-filling odours, wood and wool, damp brick and dust, and sweet starched linens. Beneath his tensing fingers weave became apparent, coolness and warmth, the weight of covers, the delicate skin-scarring press of rumpled sheet. In his mouth the taste of cold air, old house, of sight, only the hands. Silence. Lack of response. He'd never had to wait so long for answers before. Usually, they flooded on him easily. His mother's hands grew clearer. They pulsed with life. Unknown, he climbed beyond. This bottom level sets the stage for more important phenomena. Words of his father. He'd never gone up above that bottom level until now. Up, up, like cool hands drawing him to rarefied heights. Tendrils of acute consciousness rose towards the peak, searching desperately for a holding place. The hands began breaking into clouds. The clouds dispersed. It seemed he floated toward the blackened tangle of his home. Rain, a glistening lace before his eyes. He saw the front door standing, waiting for his hand. The house drew closer. It was engulfed in licking mists. Closer. Closer. Paul, no. His body shuddered on the bed. Ice frosted his brain. The house fled suddenly, bearing with itself a horrid image of two black figures. Lying on... Paul jolted up, staring and rigid. Awareness maelstromed into its hiding place. One thing alone remained. He knew that they were gone. He knew that they had guided him, sleeping from the house, even as they burned. Mother? Mother? Mother! Where are you, Mother? Are you near me, Father? Mother! Father! Dead. 
So the television version, I do think, has a good stab at it. It's a, it's a good scene, but in the book, Matheson just has this whole toolbox to play with, describing the whole sensory aspect of it. And there is a couple of better examples later on, which we'll come back to. So here we are in the home of the sheriff, Harry Wheeler, and his wife, Cora, played by Frank Overton and Barbara Baxley. Now, of course, we know Frank from back in season one, when he played Martin Sloan's father in Walking Distance. So in those intervening years, he did pretty much what he always did, lots of television episodes. He was a hard-working actor, and I guess I didn't notice it in Walking Distance because it was only a small part, but he does seem to have a perpetually serious face. And apparently that was something he was known for. And I think he's very good in this. He's just a very dependable presence, I think. You want a serious, authoritative man, then Frank's your guy. Now, on the other hand, Barbara Baxley's face runs the whole gamut of emotions during this episode. And she was born in 1923, so she would have been about 40 years old at this point and she has a respectable 76 credits to her name but apparently Broadway was where she was really at home. And there are a couple of credits that stick out in her screen career. Perhaps most notable for us is that she returned to the Twilight Zone in the 80s in an episode called Profile in Silver. So there is this part of the plot where the Wheeler family sadly lost their own daughter. So Cora especially sees Ilse as a replacement for her. And pretty much from the moment she comes into the house, Cora at times has this kind of manic energy about her. And after Harry writes letters to the other families in Europe, Cora takes them away and burns them, which causes Ilse to run away. Oh, please, help me! I'm here! Ilse Nielsen, help me, please! Leave her alone. Leave her alone! <laughs> so Mark Zickery in the Twilight Zone companion calls out Cora's behaviour and he calls her a selfish, hysterical woman who professes to love Ilsa but is actually manically intent on keeping possession of a child she irrationally feels is her own daughter return to her. And you have to agree that Cora certainly is manic at times and selfish. You could say that because she doesn't know what the situation is. She doesn't know whether these people in Germany are actually relatives. But right or wrong, I think it's at least understandable that she would behave in maybe not the best way sometimes because her daughter has died. And I don't think the episode has an obligation to show that a person who has been through that kind of trauma deals with it particularly well, because we don't always deal with things well. And she's dealing with it badly, and she makes some poor decisions because of it. And while the burning of the letters was definitely wrong, at least we can understand their reasons, even if we don't agree with them. Now moments ago in that town centre where Ilsa runs away, 
It's actually Lot 2 at MGM Studios and Martin Grams Jr. says that it's the same public park that can be seen in walking distance, a stop at Willoughby, no time like the past, and I sing the body, electric. So the next character of note in this play is Miss Frank, a teacher at the local school. As I told you a few days ago, Miss Frank, I've written to these people in Europe four or five weeks ago. We just haven't had any answer. We don't know what we're going to do with the girl. But while we're deciding, I feel she ought to start getting an education. She most certainly should. It was positively criminal of her parents not to have started her education years ago. The smugness of them, the insufferable disdain. We do not wish our daughter to go to your school just like that. In many ways, the fire was a blessing of her life. What? I'm not referring just to her lack of education, Mrs. Wheeler. But to call such a hideous thing a blessing. I'm sure I didn't mean it that way, Mrs. Wheeler. The first thing she must learn to do, of course, is talk. So not a particularly nice character, Miss Frank, and there's a nice moment where Cora tells her that Ilse is a very shy little girl, and you can see Miss Frank kind of looking in the general direction of the camera, away from Cora, and rolling her eyes. And Miss Frank is played by Eileen Daly, who was born in 1920 in New York, and her father was the manager of the Roosevelt Hotel in Manhattan, and by the age of eight, she was appearing on stage in productions. And it's her success on stage that accounts for the fact that she didn't actually hit television screens until she was 36 years old. And this episode is only her seventh screen credit, of which she only has 23. Now apparently this kind of unsympathetic and not particularly warm persona was her stock in trade. And the role she's perhaps best known for is on the American soap opera Another World, which she was on between 1975 and 1992, and that was her final screen role. But theatre really was her thing, and just before her 40th birthday, she said, I shall be 40 in September. I have nothing, really nothing. I'm not married. I have no children. All I really care about is the theatre. But now... For the first time, I know in my stomach that my work is good. And that situation never changed. She didn't marry or have children, and she passed away at the age of 88 in a care home in California. This is a boat. A, a boat sails on the ocean. 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 The men who men who live and work on the boat are called sailors. He's trying to tell about the boat. But the boat isn't words. It isn't words. Why don't they learn the way Father taught me? So here is a scene that I think they have admirably tried to get across in the script, but it was much easier for Matheson to illustrate how Ilsa's mind works in the story, or Paul's in that case. Because on screen, when Ilsa is thinking to herself that you can't describe a boat sailing on the ocean, sorry, ocean, with words, 
she's using words in her own head to get that across. So it kind of undermines that, whereas in the story, Matheson can describe how Paul's mind works to us. Paul remembered the picture his father had shown him once. It had been a picture of a boat too, but his father had not spoken futile words about the boat. His father had created about the picture every sight and sound air to it. Great blue rising swells of tide, grey-green mountain waves, their white tops lashing, storm winds whistling through the rigging of a bucking, surging, shuddering vessel, the quiet majesty of an ocean sunset, joining with scarlet seal, sea and sky. This is a farm. Men grow food on the farm. The men who grow food are called farmers. Words, empty, with no power to convey the moist warm feel of earth, the sound of grain fields rustling in the wind like golden seas, the sight of sun setting on a red barn wall, the smell of softly winds carrying from afar the delicate clank of cowbells. So again, in the story, Paul didn't just think boat, it was this whole sensory experience. He didn't need the word, he would experience the sights, the sounds, and the feel of things. So during these scenes in school, Miss Frank seems to have this burning desire for Ilsa to say her own name, but it doesn't seem to come from a place of wanting to help her. So where does it come from? Well, we get this scene. It's true, isn't it? They've been training you to be a medium. Trying to distort your innocent mind to communicate with the dead. You've been trained to be a medium, haven't you? Haven't you? No, it isn't true. That's not what they were training me for. You understand me? You know what I think. Don't you see, Elsa? You've proven my point. You've proven it to me. You are a medium. Now, to be honest, this scene did feel a bit out of the blue for me, a little odd. Maybe it's just the chances of this happening. On the one hand, we have Ilsa, raised as a telepath, and then we find out that Miss Frank's father tried to force her to be a medium. It just feels a little bit odd to me. But at the 40 minute mark of the episode, we get to the point where the book version begins, when the man from Europe, but in this case the couple from Europe, arrive to inquire after Ilse and her family. Hello. It's me, Cora. Yes, dear? <laughs> well, what is it, Harry? <laughs> Harry! The ones from Europe are here, Cora. So this is something that was quite mixed up from the short story. In the episode, we get everyone sitting around the table at the beginning explaining the plan. This is what we're going to do. We're going to raise our children as telepaths. But in the book version, the character of Werner, who is played here by Oscar Beregi from Death's Head Revisited, actually sits down and explains it to the Wheeler family. 
and he lays it out to them this experiment that this is what they were going to try and do so i think this might be something where the episode works better because would you turn up and tell someone such a, a strange thing I, i'm not sure that you would but here in the episode they keep it a secret and they leave town without actually having told the family the truth now we are almost at the end of the episode so why don't we meet the star of the show because Ilsa is played by Angelian, who was born in 1950 to Lithuanian immigrant parents and her screen career began when she was 10 years old with a small part in an episode of Leave it to Beaver and also she played Bo Peep in the Disney film Babes in Toyland and she does have a handful of roles before this one but from the looks of it Mute is the first real dramatic role where it really had some substance and some screen time. Now, as I'm sure most people know, she did make the successful transition from child actor to adult actor in the 1970s when she was apparently in that in-between spot where she was too old for cute child roles but too young to be a leading lady. She ended up working in a department store and studying psychology. But things did pick up for her again and one of her career highlights was the role of Cassie Cranston in the TV series It's a Living which gave her a sex symbol status. And she even went on to have her own sitcom called Anne Gillian in which she played a woman called Anne McNeil. So it was in that kind of strange time where they would name a sitcom after the main star but then give him a different name within the actual show. But also in 1988 she played herself in a TV movie called The Angelian Story which dealt with her diagnosis with cancer and her recovery from it. And she seems to have retired from acting in the year 2000 but thankfully she is still with us. Ilse, you must concentrate. Your father was in contact with us. friends of your parents. Ilse, think. Ilse, where's your mind? Your mind, Ilse. Concentrate. My name is Ilse. My name is Ilsa. You know, I watched this episode and I was thoroughly entertained by it. It didn't feel long, the story kept me guessing, and I came away satisfied. But not really much more than that. And then I started to think to myself, what is all this about? Is Richard Matheson trying to tell us something with this, or is he just writing a good story? 
and my mind went to the scene at the beginning where all of the people from the group are talking and they discuss whether it's fair to force this experiment on their children. So is it about that? Is it talking about people who subject their children to a particular lifestyle, a philosophy or a belief system without really giving them the space to choose themselves? I guess you could take that from it. But then I read Mark Zickrey's entry in The Twilight Zone Companion, and he says, Matheson adapted the story for Twilight Zone, retaining the basic story, but changing the gender of the child. What emerged was an episode that was crushingly pro-conformity. What is so disturbing, particularly to anyone who believes that talent and individuality are sacred items, is the manner in which the story evolves. Apart from the child, virtually all of the main characters are either brutishly insensitive or cruelly neurotic. In the end, when Ilsa is traumatised into screaming my name is Ilsa over and over again, it's a triumph of sadistic and misguided teaching methods. Without intending to, Mute focuses on a terrible aspect of real life, those adults who commit secret atrocities against children, whose deeds never come to light, who are never punished for their actions. The problem with Mute is that instead of taking a moral stand against this behaviour, it rationalises these monstrous acts. So after reading that, I find myself not entirely disagreeing with them. I think it's a valid point of view, and because I don't really have a strong take on this one myself, I'm kind of inclined to listen to what anyone's got to say about it and think, okay, I can see where you're coming from here. I guess if we dissect what Zikri says, he's saying it's all about how terrible people are to children in secret sometimes, it's also pro-conformity, and I think when you pick that apart a bit, there are a couple of uh, maybe problems with it, in that this has been forced upon Ilsa in a way. Her parents have given her this way of life without her choice. So there is the, the child being mistreated part of it. And then he says it's also pro-conformity because another family try and make her like everyone else. They try and make her talk. And I suppose the flaw in that is that the actions of the family that she goes to, the Wheelers, are completely understandable. I mean, Cora, yes, we will make some allowances for her because her behaviour was so erratic at times. And yes, the teacher was the villain of the piece in a way because she didn't seem to have any compassion in her body. But other than that, they thought the child was neglected, so they tried to do their best by her. So I'm not sure I completely go with the whole it's completely pro-conformity thing, but like I said, I don't think this is one that I really have a, a strong take on myself. So it's fascinating to hear what other people think about it. And I have to say that five episodes into season four, I haven't seen a bad episode yet. And like Charles Beaumont's opening episode, it's just a pretty faithful adaptation of a short story. So there's nothing really that I'd take out of this one either. If the length is fine on the page, then it's fine on the screen. So this one doesn't really inspire me. It doesn't really have anything that I personally identify with. So it's not really gonna be a top tier Twilight Zone for me. 
but I'm quite happy to sit it solidly in the middle tier. And sometimes that's just enough. It has been noted in a book of proven wisdom that perfect love casteth out fear. While it's unlikely that this observation was meant to include that specific fear which follows the loss of extrasensory perception, the principle remains as always beautifully intact. Case in point, that of Ilsa Nielsen, former resident of the Twilight Zone. Okay, so that is mute and a bit of a tricky one for me that it, uh, I enjoyed it well enough, but because I didn't really have a strong take on it, and because there was no trivia, I don't like it when it seems like I'm just going to start narrating the episode. That's always the danger. I don't want to be like one of those directors who does a movie commentary, and they're like, okay, and this is the scene where Tom Cruise opens the door, you know, and they're just saying what's on the screen. So I find what's best to do with those episodes is really just try and do them as quick as possible, and get them out the way because because if I don't have a great deal to say about it, what's the point in in sticking round? Just try and just try and give maybe a bit of a review if there's really nothing else to it. But hopefully you enjoyed it, and hopefully and hopefully the next one will inspire me a bit more. Okay, we've got a couple of pieces of listener feedback, so I will just say thank you to Jason Proper for your iTunes review, and also to Val for joining on Patreon and supporting the show and it's a good time to jump on board over on patreon i'm actually pausing uh, the payments at the end of this month um during the pandemic you know just to take the pressure off if anyone is struggling and to say thank you for supporting me so it's over at patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast and next month i'm going to be revamping the whole thing a lot of the same content may be delivered in a slightly different way. Okay, so let's go over to some friends of the show to hear what they think about season four so far. Hey Tom and Twilight Zoners, Jack Ward here. I hope everyone is keeping safe and rested. I've been limited with my online time for the past couple of months and that's been frustrating because I missed out on sharing my thoughts about season three. Well, at least I can catch up on some of Season 4. Season 4, well, (laughs) I've only been able to pick out a couple of episodes that stand out for me. I think for the most part, the one-hour format doesn't really work well with The Twilight Zone, and I've said so even about the newest series. There are, of course, exceptions to this. There are two main problems I can see with a poor hour-long episode. Number one. A good Twilight Zone episode needs the audience to be intrigued and not confused. In a half hour, you can tease out missing information, but if you extend the format too long, you risk losing any buy-in from the audience. And then you just become the television show lost. (laughs) And, well, the second reason, it could very well just be boring. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of which, the 30 Fathom Grave... I found this to be a terribly slow show, like many people who have already said. It felt more like it was pulled from the ideas of one of the Tales of the Crypt EC comic stories. Twilight Zone is at its worst when it 
has an ending, but no good story to support it. In his image just before that, I enjoyed more, but it also feels like a story that was pulled straight out of an Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury tale, and it's been looked at from almost every direction in the Twilight Zone, and will be again in the future. The acting was good, and it did give me an idea for an audio drama of my own that maybe reverses the whole idea. Like, what if there were a world of androids, and one of them secretly recreates a human, and sets him or her off in society to see how they fare, and they don't know that they're not an android. That'd be kind of an interesting twist and a change, I think. Episode 3, The Valley of the Shadows, is pleasant enough, but it lacks the teeth of a good character study, and in fact, it doesn't have much of characterization at all. I do like the idea of a breakaway civilization, which has been, you know, whispered about for generations now. Is there some group of humans who have technology beyond what the average folks have, and they keep it away from us? You know, what good could they do? You could almost see a regular series or a television series about people working in the background of history, doing everything they can to remain anonymous, but thwarting humanity's worst mistakes. When you think about all the times we've almost extinguished ourselves, you could almost argue that they've been doing it for us already. Uh, He's Alive is one of my all-time favorite Twilight Zones in any of the seasons. I think if it's not in my top 10, it would certainly crack the top 25 for sure. Rod's dialogue is best when he's either looking to one single redemption of a character or into the black heart of society. And here he does an excellent job. As you know, I show the odd Twilight Zone to my students and they really react well to this one. It shakes them and makes them think about their own beliefs and prejudices. I think we forget how teenage life is so full of conflicting emotions. Peter's ability to betray Ernst isn't so hard to understand when you remember how parents can be easily supplanted by a bad crowd, especially when Peter's real parents are so awful to him. He's desperate to be something to people, to matter to them. When you've got a hole that big inside of you, the more people who accept you, the better you feel. But the problem is, it's never enough. Because the truth is, you have to like yourself. I reject the whole toxic masculinity angle. I think that's too postmodern a take on this. If you look at people who have left the KKK or neo-Nazi organizations, they are the first ones to talk about how they wanted to belong to something. To be something bigger than themselves. And then they fall down the wrong hole. But this is no different. I mean, this is the same with cults. And they can happen to men or women, as the Manson family demonstrates. The story Mute is another interesting show, but it also didn't grip me. We'll see what you think. Some of my favorites coming up are Jezebel and Printer's Devil, but I won't spoil anyone for those. In the meantime, I'll be listening. And once again, take care everyone. For me, I can't wait to listen to more Rod audio drama myself. What's up, Tom? It's like I'm in NASA. Uh, I was not going to send feedback until mute. That's what I was waiting for. But 
your uh, your episode on He's Alive uh, got me thinking about a lot of different things related to that episode. I probably should have planned on talking about this episode. But anyway, here I am. I guess the first thing I want to talk about um, is some of the critique, um, you know, somewhat from you, but but mostly from, from Zikri in terms of like why he was living with a Holocaust survivor um, or why the main character was living with a Holocaust survivor, Ernst, uh, that's Volmer I'm talking about. I think from a writing perspective, I personally think that this was done in order to show the overt cowardice and hypocriticism of a lot of the people that are in these hate groups. And I also think that people with this hatred bent slant or like this thirst for attention or sort of like this masochism to them, um, sometimes they take kindness for weakness. And I think there was even a bit of jealousy portrayed for the strength, the silent strength that Ernst had in the presence of Vollmer. And I actually think that Dennis Hopper and the, the gentleman that played Ernst did a good job of playing that off. Um, I don't think that I'm making that up out of thin air or that I'm that imaginative. I just think that it's there. I don't know if it's there in words, but it's it's certainly there in the way that they acted it through. And I think for that reason, you know, I, <laughs> I hate to be a, a jerkish person, but it's almost time to retire some of the older Zikri opinions. In fairness to him, you know, you're, you're talking about opinions that were written 40 years ago by a guy who was, you know, remarkably probably in his 20s at the time. And I may have made this point in the past about some of Zikri's opinions is, uh, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to write the standard bearing Twilight Zone book, you know, when I was that young, because Twilight Zone takes a lot of life experience to understand. I'd be curious if he's modified any of his opinions. Um, I would really hope that he has, especially on an episode as important as this one. I think that brings me to my next point is just understanding sort of the context and why Serling wrote something like this and 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 how, you know, some of the critiques at the time that you had read, you know, were sort of questioning like, you know, and I, I think yourself too, um, were, were questioning rightfully, you know, was this really a real concern or is this, you know, sort of like Serling going after straw men or trying to make a point? And I think it certainly was a concern. I think when you're talking about a Jewish American who grew up and joined the army just to go and fight Hitler and the Nazis at age 17 uh, slash 18, and then comes back from the war being sent to the Pacific Theater instead, sacrificing for his country, doing what was right, and living with the PTSD and with the problems that everyone knows that he lived with, because of it and I'm sure he found himself in situations where he still would see anti-semitism in America and where he would certainly see racism in America I think it probably got under his skin considering what he sacrificed to uphold what are supposed to be American ideals which is against those things and I think in 19 you know 62 you know obviously this is almost sort of as the civil rights movement is starting, but it's not even at the apex yet. And this is all still going on in America. You've got, you know, African-Americans going to war and coming back and having less rights in the streets of America than they did in a trench in Europe or, or in Asia. So 
I think those things really bothered Serling. I think they bothered a lot of people. And I think Serling is the one that had the voice to talk about it. And I think that he was really concerned with these sorts of opinions taking hold. I think, you know, from an American perspective, Tom, I think that, you know, it's very undocumented historically the amount of Nazi sympathism that was going on during the war in America, even in the United Kingdom. It's things that we don't talk about because ultimately they didn't result in a bad outcome for the war per se, but those people did exist and they certainly continue to exist. And unfortunately they continue to exist to this day. And I think Serling being the person that he was having the experience that he had would certainly be really concerned about this. You know, another point that I wanted to make is um, you compared it a couple of times to Monsters That Do on Maple Street. I, I think, you know, the, the more straight line for me is Death's Head Revisited, which you did mention at one point uh, or several points. But Death's Head Revisited, I feel like this is a stronger episode. Not that Death's Head Revisited isn't a strong episode because I think it is a very strong episode. But Death's Head Revisited was very much about delivering a very distinct message, a very important message. But there was almost no real story. Whereas He's Alive was a story that that built, you know, as a story to deliver a message. Instead of a message that had a story built around it, like Death's Head Revisited did. And that's why I think this is a bit stronger. I do agree with you that the time in, in He's Alive has almost no effect at all. And it, and it could have been longer. The last point that I wanted to make is sort of one that I think should be made, at least by somebody, perhaps not you because of your role in the show, but I think a lot of times people ask either online or in any forum, you know, what would Serling have thought about Trump? What would he have said during these times that we live in? And I think this is the answer to that. I don't think it's any stretch at all to compare Vollmer to Trump. I think you know, where the comparisons to Hitler and Trump stop is obviously, um, you know, Hitler murdered millions of people in death camps. And uh, it would be foolhardy to compare Trump to that sort of evil. But I also think that in terms of manipulating audiences and turning them against each other and stoking the hatred that could eventually get to that point again, unfortunately, it's a very direct comparison to Hitler and certainly to this character of Vollmer. And I think that Serling was really trying to warn us against these sorts of characters. You know, when you have George Wallace and you have Barry Goldwater and you have Sean Thurman and people that were on the American scene politically at that time that were representing these sorts of segregationist and racist views and garnering votes, I think this probably was a warning sign for Rod Serling, again, with the context of being a Jewish American that fought in World War II. Coming back, I think there had to be a hope or a seed in him thinking, after defeating such evil, maybe our country will change. And it didn't happen. And it still hasn't happened fully. And I think that's why an episode like this is written. And I thought it was written really well. It was probably one of the best episodes writing-wise that, that Serling did for the entire series. And the last point I want to make is a lot of people had some issues with the new Twilight Zone. I, I definitely think the criticism is fair in terms of 
yes, they hit social issues every single episode of the 10 episode run. Aside maybe from Blurry Man, uh, which was the, the 10th and final episode. And as I was watching it in these times, I felt like it was really necessary. And I was really impressed by the fact that the crew and the writing staff and the showrunners definitely watched this episode a lot. And others like it, like I Am the Night, uh, Death Had Revisited, uh, and they certainly seem to have listened to Serling's speeches at UCLA and other colleges, you know, and, and heard his political beliefs. And I think they took it upon themselves, and I may have said this in other feedbacks, but I think they took it upon themselves to represent what Serling would have done had he felt he was able to do it without the censors breathing down his neck. And I think they really took that as their mantra and they went about doing that for his legacy in, in season one. The criticism that I understand about the new series is that some of those weighty social topics like in He's Alive have way more weight, you know, following or being in between episodes like Mute and Death Ship and, you know, things that are more about like um, nonconformity or, um, you know, just like an interesting, thoughtful um, examination of self or selfishness or things like that, things that are everyman topics. And I do think that that's a fair criticism. On the other hand, you've only got 10 episodes to do something. This is your first shot. This could be your only season. I think they went for it. My point is, He's Alive existed in a time where it was probably critiqued. You know, the number of letters that it got are probably pretty irrelevant, but I'm sure that it got letters. I'm sure that word got around about this episode, even within Hollywood. I think it's important to point out, you know, that the criticism was, was very unfair. Um, you know, I think the idea... The idea expressed in that one review that you pointed out about communism w was interesting. And I don't know exactly where this squares, but it's important to understand history and the fact that somebody in 1962 could write this without understanding, understanding the firm history of that European dictators basically fit two roles. They were fascist or Nazis or they were communists, and those were two opposing agendas, and that the Nazi party stood against communism and that German communists had actually lost their their ability to, to, to take power in that country due to the, the, the Nazi movement. You know, standing against communism in and of itself, as Serling pointed out, is not enough. You have to actually be against racism and Nazism and white supremacy as well and that's how you can build a positive democratic country i know this is a bit of a tangent but you know I, I, it does surprise me a little bit that only 18 years outside of the end of world war ii that people had already lost hold of that you know people critique the united states political situation today as partisan as it is and, and you could say that about almost any other country these days but i don't know how different times are now i just think that we have more ability to take in more information and hear more of these opinions and disagree with each other more often i don't know if people are 
more ignorant or more partisan than they ever have been after hearing that sort of quote, just a blind ignorance to the message uh, that was being said so close to the end of World War II. Uh, that's kind of shocking to me and an interesting study of, of our society here in the States. Well, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> that was, uh, it's a great episode. You know, a spoiler alert, I, I think He's Alive and, and New Exhibit are the, the two layups. Very, very different episodes, but those are the two sort of automatic top tier episodes in season four. Um, I have a lot of other favorites, including Mute. I was actually going to hold out for Mute. I, I jumped ahead of you in watching them again because I do know all the season four episodes, but I don't know them like, you know, like the back of my hand, like some of the half hour episodes, obviously. So I've been watching along with you and um, Mute, I, I remember liking it and I liked it even more, but uh, I'll stop there because I was actually, what I was going to say is I was waiting to just send <laughs> feedback on Mute because I thought there'd be a lot more feedback on He's Alive. And after hearing um, some of the back and forth that you created um, with your episode with positive and negative thoughts on it, I, I figured I would chime in now and just, just cave to the obvious thing that was always going to happen, which I was going to send in feedback on He's Alive. All right. Thanks, Tom. Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message. If you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then send a clip of about five minutes or so to Tom at the Twilight Zone podcast and share your thoughts about the season four episodes so far or maybe the next one on the list. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what that is. And now, Mr. Serling. Mr. Richard Matheson lets his typewriter pay us a return visit next time out on Twilight Zone with a story called Death Ship. Now this one is for science fiction aficionados, ghost story buffs, and any and all who file away clues with an eye toward outguessing the writer. Next on Twilight Zone, Messrs. Jack Klugman, Ross Martin, and Fred Beer take an extended trip through space on a death ship. Captain. Something glittered down there. What is it? Something down there? Mason thinks so. There was something. No one takes any risks. That's an order, Mason.